Welcome to the Grappling Arts Podcast, dedicated to discussion of professional wrestling, performance, culture and history. Today's episode focuses on the many fascinating intersections between wrestling, physical culture and bodybuilding. The guest for this episode is Dr. Connor Heffernan. Connor Heffernan is formerly Assistant Professor of Physical Culture and Sports Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. But in September, he will start a new role at Ulster University in Northern Ireland. Connor's research focuses on the meaning of the body in 19th and 20th century Europe and the United States. This includes the study of gender, race, nationalism, food and childhood. Away from academia, Connor is a regular contributor to health and fitness websites. At present, he contributes regularly to barben.com, as well as his own really fascinating history of fitness website, Physical Culture Study. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you do, please subscribe and leave a review. I was just watching some um, of the Bodybuilding Federation. Oh, yeah. It's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I figured... I was like, I think I know a bit about it. And then I was like, actually, maybe I don't. So I was just kind of watched half a YouTube, um, you know, like a fan made history of. Oh, yeah, yeah. In 15 minutes, history of thingy. WBF. Yeah. Yes. It's totally mad. I spent all these uh, months working with Connor on this WBF um, article. So we've just watched a lot of WBF stuff and he's read all the WBF magazines, which I have not done at Hasten to Word. He's done that for your work. And, um, and, um, and I've watched all the shows and everything that is available. Uh, that is it all on the network then, all the shows? or is it? No, none of, as far as I know, none of it's on the network. Um, but there are kind of intersection moments. If you watch the network from like 90, 1991, you'll find moments where like, Lex Luger will be talking about WBF or something. Um, yeah, it's so so you see that, but you don't see any of the other stuff. So so, but the actual full 1992 show, if you're interested, is on is on YouTube. So you can right. watch it start to finish. It's over. I say record. It's like it's like two hours long. It's brutal, mm. um, and it's totally mad. It's sort of like it's a cross between mad and boring. Like it's quite <laughs> weird. <laughs> like it's both. It's both really really out there but also when they actually come on they just do a pose down as you would imagine because it's bodybuilding yeah. but you're expecting wrestling so it's a really weird moment and mean gene just seems like kind of all at sea and, <laughs> and vince just spends all his time going for big men like all the time but as you, as you would imagine <laughs> and, um, hilarious um yeah it's quite it's quite a thing it's quite a thing and um, we're trying to work out whether the end of that show so at the end of that show, the guy who wins it, um, they kind of like almost present him as like kind of a heel character, right. sort of, or at least going towards a heel turn. And of course, that was the last show. So we never know if that was actually going to happen. But it just felt like this was bodybuilding inflected with wrestling in interesting ways. So, yeah. So Connor and I are currently writing this thing about the madness of going, yeah. That sounds really good. <laughs> it does sound really good. Yeah. I think it's... um by way of a kind of intro to the episode, I think it's interesting to talk about, um, like it's, it's interesting that I think maybe people that haven't have listened to it aren't aware that we have this kind of wider interest in stuff like this. Um, so, so it's going to be a great opportunity to talk to Connor about that. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. And I think that that like intersection of sport, physical culture, which I'll kind of leave Connor to explain what that is better than I can, 
um, things like bodybuilding, but also Connor and I have a shared interest in the world's strongest man. Yeah. Um, like we're both obsessed with the world's strongest man from like right the way back to like the eighties. Just fantastic spectacle. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I remember watching it. I definitely remember watching it on. Um, did it move to Channel Four? Because obviously it was World of Sports yeah. to start with, wasn't it? And then. Yeah. I guess so. I would have been watching it probably like mid nineties or something like that. I remember Magnuson. Yeah, um, those big Icelandic guys. Yeah. Yeah, he was always the top guy when I remember watching it. Magnum Magnuson. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then like I have like as well, um, which I think Connor will talk about because obviously he trained. Well, I get the impression that he trains. I think he trains. Yeah. Um, from his blog, so like I've dabbled a bit in kind of strongman classes and stuff like that, and played with things like atlas stones and yokes oh. and tire flips and things so yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's not just a and i know obviously you 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 yourself you train as well don't you so yeah i like to lift heavy things on occasions yeah no that's i i and only quite recently like i i've always been quite sporty but kind of as i've got older um which makes me sound about 104 but as i've got older like they've always say like it's better like those women you should be like lifting you shouldn't be just doing like cardio so try to take that a bit seriously and really enjoy lifting stuff um it's good like it's, it's kind of it's, it's really empowering like it's really mm. it, um i find it much more interesting than cardio and also it puts, mm. your, puts all your muscles and everything under way less strain so mm. um, i would strongly recommend it so yes but i i i think i i feel like very much the junior partner in this conversation about lifting heavy things i'm sure that you and um kind of have a good deal more experience yeah. i think I, as well like what what interests me um is like we obviously talk about the intersection between wrestling and performance and art and theater yeah. and i think people can probably um that's that's fairly easy to grasp because it's it is highly theatrical um but there's actually like um there's a lot of crossover in in physical culture as well isn't there like i you know strongman is a combination of um performance and sculpture in a way like that's one of the yeah. things that today fascinates me about strongman is when you see um particularly rogue who i, I think connor probably has a kind of loose affiliation with because yeah. rogue now run um the arnold classic and i know that the, the guy who's i think the guy who's like the director of the arnold classic is also director of like stark institute as well mm. so i think they the rogue actually they engage historians and academics in the development of the events at the Arnold which is really interesting so they like recreate old strongman tests and feats yeah. and stuff with modern athletes yeah which is absolutely fascinating and of course that that history of you talk about sculpture and um and performance and the body and muscularity such an intertwined culture you know mm. I think we kind of overlook it sometimes but you know, when you go right the way back to kind of the late 19th, early 20th century, music halls, variety shows, um, yeah, I'm sure we'll probably come on to Eugene Sandow, kind of slightly troublesome figure in lots of ways. I'm not going to kind of present him as some sort of hero, but interesting nonetheless. And he kind of taps into all that, what, what in theatre terms is called like tableau vivant, which is where you kind of set up a tableau and you kind of hold it this pose mm. he did loads of this really influenced by greek culture as well ancient greek culture um mm. with a lot of that physical culture stuff is really interested in um kind of ancient athens ancient rome gladiatorial contests um that that you know that that sort of tradition as well when you go into the british museum and you see these mm. 
kind of sculptures um, from that period um, and and they're all like buff yeah. <laughs> you know um, this is what they were interested in replicating mm. on stage and and indeed in kind of physical culture contests bodybuilding like such a kind of mixed history it's all kind of kind of brought kind of brought together like all all intersects I think so you kind of got to have mm. a knowledge of all of it for it to make kind of make sense as a jigsaw I suppose um, yeah yeah, no, definitely. And and not to mention, obviously, body, you know, modern, modern bodybuilding, the bodybuilding of, of the WWF and the, the World Bodybuilding Federation that I'm sure we're talking about. Um, oh. And that actually, because like you mentioned ancient Rome and stuff like that, um, I think we've had a conversation before about WrestleMania. Um, so WrestleMania 9, maybe? The Caesar's Palace WrestleMania, yeah. where all of that kind of comes together, because that's right. Has, has, the, has the bodybuilding federation died by that point or is because luger's in wwf isn't he at that point yeah. as the narcissist and yeah. yes and there's lots of very very bodybuilding looking greek uh, roman centurions sort of littered around the ringside area and macho man gets brought out on a on a kind of what would you call it like a caravan type yeah. thing carried by bodybuilders yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so so according to the power of google so that's 93. So it's just after the WBF has kind of concluded, really, or at least kind of being wound down. Um, but you can really, I mean, the intersection between wrestling and bodybuilding is there all the time. You know, those mm. even now when like when you see those sort of vignettes of, a, of someone training, like it's that they use so many tropes of of bodybuilding in order to do that. And of course, you know, we know that Vince is kind of obsessed with large guys i mean he always has been right that's mm. his that's his favorite physique that's his favorite physique for himself mm. you know he is he is a bodybuilder and you know when you see him um yeah when you see him in his in his kind of some of those matches around that period and later indeed as well like, like an astonishing shape really yeah. astonishing shape yeah um, absolutely so yeah um yeah fascinating intersections anyways yeah, and plus, like we've talked recently about um, movies with with Sam Benjamin and a little yeah. bit with um, with Charles Crowley as well. Um, so there's there's obviously obvious crossovers there, isn't there, with the kind of action movie body, the you know Arnie in action films and the Rock in action films. Yeah. And it's funny you should say that after talking about the WBF, because the WBF, if like you want to go back and you watch that whole show, WBF which is sort of an interesting way to spend your afternoon, but go on, let's do it anyways. Like, it's constantly like what we would, what we would kind of term in academic circles intertextual, but basically it thinks about popular culture all the time. So like there are characters that are brought on as like Top Gun and James Bond, um, and, and but then kind of more generic characters like the, the quote unquote kind of mad straight jacketed character, like, He's there. It's just fascinating. Like those, so you can see, so you can, you, for me, as we've talked about before, wrestling is always about understanding popular culture in a more, in a more general way. So um, yeah. Mm. Hi Connor. Hiya. Hi Connor. I thought I was doing well. I was coming early uh, and you two have beat me to the post. That's very upsetting. <laughs> no, don't worry. We, we, we tend to do a pre-record where Sam and I just sort of blether on for a bit, which we've done. So <laughs> you're all good. <laughs> good timing. Yeah, really good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm in my conservatory and the sun has come out. So it's a lovely tropical slash ninth circle of hell feeling to my office, uh, which is very enjoyable. How are you two? Yeah, doing pretty good, I think. 
Um, yeah, yeah, very well. It's, it's warm here, but I can't imagine it's anywhere near as warm as, as where, you, where you are. Uh, a conservatory in Dublin. <laughs> oh, right. You're not in, oh, sorry. <laughs> I just assumed you were in tech. I don't know why I assumed you were in Texas. Oh, but... yeah. I'm no, the I'm... same hour of the day, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a job in Ulster uh, that I'm joining in September. So we're back in Ireland now. The desire to look better naked. There we go. That's now going to be that. That is now the tagline. For, uh, it's better to get out in front on that one because if you're studying yeah. uh, old bodybuilding magazines in a public place, I mean, you really, you really have to be comfortable <laughs> with your subject matter. Uh, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, so you're currently like a professor of physical culture and sport of sorts, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you got that job. Um, so what is your what is your background? Um, like Sam and I were chatting before, we were like. Connor's got a kind of interesting training sporting background as well so it's kind of interesting to hear about that as well if that's right. Yeah perfect so um, on the academic side of things I'm a very boring historian who stumbled into the history of fitness and gym cultures. I was a dreadful undergraduate student uh, which is always a point of empathy between me and my I will never say dreadful undergraduate students but undergraduate students who would, would remind me of me uh, at that stage in their life. Um, so my road to Damascus shining moment came when a professor said what do you like doing and I said well nothing much aside from going to the gym and he said study that um, and it's kind of evolved from there so I did my history degree in Dublin moved on to England where I looked at Indian club swinging in the uh, Victorian era and actually there's the, a the point of crossover with wrestling because obviously we have the Iron Sheik doing the Persian meal challenge and there's a lot, a lot of similarities between Persian meals and Indian clubs and then I went back to Dublin and I did a PhD on bodybuilding in Ireland in the 20th century. And I got lucky enough that when I finished the PhD, the University of Texas at Austin had a job opening that somehow, and I'm still not quite sure how that came about, I managed to snag a job. And we'll probably talk about the UT Austin at some point because they have a repository called the H.J. Lutcher Stack Center of Physical Culture and Sport. Finally learned how to say that after two years where it's pretty much the world's one-stop shop for the history of strength, the history of fitness, history of powerlifting, bodybuilding, weightlifting, crossfitting, yoga-ing, zumbaing, all of the fitness terms that we want to use. So we have the academic trajectory where really since I was in the final year of my undergraduate, I've been looking at fitness, be it bodybuilding or going to the gym or state-endorsed programs of fitness. And then there's the personal crossover where I was a dreadful rugby player growing up as a teenager but I was very enthusiastic and that uh, manifested itself in going to the gym a lot more than a lot of my teammates and realizing that I don't need to be skilled I can just be the one who's maybe a little bit fit and a little bit strong and I'll never start the games but you know I'll be in and around the setup um, and when my rugby career ended thanks to three or four broken noses 
it's usually time to pack it in when your nose is starting to kind of spread across your face like margarine um i just kept going to the gym i've done two natural bodybuilding shows that's drug uh, free bodybuilding shows that's a terrible idea because you destroy your hormones when you do stuff like that um and then i've just been a kind of recreational gym goer ever since so effectively a lot of my academic practice is trying to come to grips with a lot of the weird things we do in the gym why is this popular who is this individual why does everyone talk about her um, and it's just kind of spawned and continued to i suppose just gain momentum uh from there yeah great um such a interesting mixed background um and sam and i was talking about like how um how our kind of personal interests both all three of us in lots of ways actually in sport and physical culture and um lifting and and fitness how that sort of transmuted itself into into our academic work as well um which is yeah something i think that unites us probably um hmm. yeah well there's that wonderful thing isn't it? when you're studying the body it, it causes you to ask questions in a way that if you're studying something quite static it's a little bit harder so it's funny most theater you know scholars or sport historians or sports sociologists they all seem to have like skin in the game that they've either been a practitioner themselves or they're a lay practitioner or they just have grown up with it in a way that i don't get from people in other realms of history for example if you studied a genocidal period in history it'd be quite weird to me if you were like so stemming from my background in you know x i really got to the grips of this i think when you study the body it forces you to ask these like really interesting questions yeah yeah um so I want to, you know, the thing that we're most interested in this podcast, of course, is wrestling. And we'll come on to some matches in a bit, um, which you gave us to watch, which were brilliant. Um, can you tell us about how you got into wrestling and some of your earliest memories of wrestling? Yeah, I always, my introduction to wrestling always raises quite a few eyebrows. I was introduced to wrestling through ITV's World of Sport, but reruns that my grandmother had. Um, so my first uh, memory of a wrestling match is uh, Mick McManus versus Cat Weasel in like the mid 70s and seeing a tape from that and the VHS. So although I would go on to be a you know attitude era aficionado and then eventually would get some kind of tapes from WCW, my introduction to wrestling was the world of British wrestling and the big daddy giant haystacks kind of you know large men but then also the really agile and um, like Mark Rollerball Rocco individual as well. But it was it was very piecemeal initially because it was whatever my grandmother who loved Big Daddy had in her house. Um, so it wasn't until later then when I got into the Attitude Era that I got the like constant feedback of wrestling, you know, like every week rather than the yeah. treat when I was introduced to uh, wrestling in my grandmother's house. So it's been a, it's a weird point of entry um, for a lot of people. If you haven't watched British wrestling, it's a very, very strange point of entry. Um, because in Ireland, WWF or WWE now was the predominant form of wrestling that people watched. It was a lot harder to get WCW matches. So I think most people from my generation would have grown up with the WWF. And I, I was one of those. But yeah, my first point of contact was British wrestling. And I think for that reason, my engagement with wrestling has always been quite like a loose hold with the WWF where I'll dip into there. But I preferred, like, I was one of the strange people who liked TNA for many years um, and then dropped back, went back to WWF. And then, uh, you know, AEW is now my latest um, kind of favoured outlet. And before that, it was Ring of Honor. So I love wrestling, but I've always been quite ambivalent towards the WWF. It seems to be 
what I use in between the other federations and divisions mm-hmm. and organizations that I like to engage with. Um, so yeah, big cat weasel fan uh, is the long and short of my, <laughs> my love of wrestling. Well, there we go. That, that, is, that is a unique answer to that question. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so um, we'll come on to some more specific examples of wrestling in a bit and discuss the, discuss the matches, uh, Connor, that you shared with us. Um, but let's kind of try and bring these two things together a little bit before we move on to them. So can, you kind of defined physical culture for us. Um, so can wrestling be described as physical culture? Is it physical culture? Like one of the things that we're super interested in, uh, Sam and I, and, and I imagine other people who have been listening to this um, out there, is, um, is wrestling on this intersection of sport and art. And I wonder if physical culture helps us to understand that a bit better. So um, yeah, is it physical culture and how is it? Yeah, so I think it's interesting when you think about physical culture, the definition is kind of a late 19th, early 20th century phenomenon where we start to see strong men and strong women um, you know, doing strength acts in the music hall or in the vaudeville stage or at the circus as well in the United States, but also in Europe. And when we think about the origins of physical culture, which is now generally regarded as the pre quote unquote pre-modern uh, fitness environment, there's an incredible crossover, not even a crossover. There is a marriage between wrestling and physical culture. So a lot of the strongman um, antics of the early 1900s would not be out of place in the WWF. Eugene Sandow, who is seen as the quote-unquote father of modern bodybuilding, he is an incredible showman where he will you know, go to other strongman shows, he will stand up in the audience, he will challenge them to a weightlifting feat, and this will happen to him. He will sue other people in public for claiming that you know, they're stronger than he is. He will, I suppose, undercut individuals at times. Like, so he's very much the Vince McMahon uh, of the early bodybuilding world. But you find that a lot of the early bodybuilders, the strong men and even the strong women use wrestling as a means of training their body as also as a means of promoting themselves and their body, but also they don't see a distinction between weightlifting or, you know, strong uh, strength activities and wrestling. So possibly one of the most well-known historical names in wrestling, George Hackenschmidt, he also has a lineage in physical culture as a weightlifter, but also as a physique star. You get even, say, Eugene Sandow, and I know Sam knows this uh, intimately, he did wrestling uh, at various points in his career. Started with humans, ended up wrestling a lion at one point, but there is a wrestling lineage in his background. Bernard McFadden, the man who kickstarts America's interest in health and fitness, he starts off as a circus performer and as a wrestler. Even individuals who were outright wrestlers, so in the early 1900s, a number of Hindu and Muslim wrestlers from India traveled to England, like Gamma the Great, Bhutan Singh, and others. They wrestle, and it is, I'm going to use quote-unquote real wrestling uh, for the time, but they're also the kind of darlings of the physical culture world, because people are saying, look how they develop their physiques. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can learn from them. So we have the antics of early strongmen who do the kind of call-out culture and do these very theatrical weightlifting bouts against one another, which is reminiscent of a lot of the storylines and arcs in wrestling itself, but also the early origins of physical culture. There is a marrying between physical culture and wrestling, where a lot of the wrestlers are also seen as physical culturists. And even it's no surprise that this continues. The 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, like Farmer Burns, again, very well-known wrestling individual. He's writing physical culture books at the same time, or physical culture magazine articles at the same time. So it's not 
it's, it's never, the two paths are never really divorced. And I think you see that even in the physiques of wrestlers that you have today, but even going into the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, there's a huge overlap in British fitness magazines like Health and Strength, but also American physical culture periodicals like Physical Culture, where wrestlers are being asked to write about their exercise regimen, their training regimen, um, just their general outlook on life. So it's always been embedded, I think, within the world of physical culture. So I would see wrestling not apart from physical culture, but actually a deeply embedded part of that modern interest in health and fitness because so much of wrestling is body focused. And when it's body focused, it has that overlap with the general health atmosphere. Yes, that's incredibly interesting, uh, especially this sort of intertwined history, like it becomes mm. very difficult to separate these histories out. I'm gonna ask a follow on if that's all right, just because I'm super interested in this link with, um, with particularly with Indian wrestling and um, and with Hindu and, and Muslim wrestlers, but also and I know there's quite a lot of Japanese wrestlers um, and performers around this time coming to coming to the UK in particular. But from all over the world, I'm kind of interested in like the way that these um, practices kind of cross nations. Like it feels like very like we used to work kind of transnational but it feels like there's these all these practices like traveled all over the world and kind of mixed with each other and um it's, yeah it's just I, I don't know if you that's not really a question but you know what I mean like um, <laughs> I, I'm interested do you have anything to say about that particular issue that's my question <laughs> yeah so I think the thing that makes physical culture different from other eras because I mean there's evidence of you know, Chinese soldiers lifting stones thousands of years ago, or Indian wrestlers, you know, lifting heavy Indian clubs thousands of years ago, or Persian meals, or in ancient Greece, you know, we have the gymnasium. One of the things that separates those older strength and health lineages from what I'm saying, physical culture, the late 1800s, is that transnational element. So you get people are writing and reading materials in Britain that are also being read in India, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. One of the fascinating things about the physical culture phenomenon is how it transcends boundaries or how it bleeds into different worlds. And you get some really interesting mixes because of that. You get someone like Eugene Sandow and Kerry Watt and more recently Sebastian Conrad have written about his global tours. So he starts off in Britain, he'll go to the US for several years, he'll go to China, he'll go to India, he'll go to South Africa, he'll go to New Zealand, he'll go to Australia, he'll set up Sandow schools and they'll all write back to him in London. You also get individuals like Arthur Saxon, who will go to India, who will go to the United States. Katie Sandwina will go on world tours. So there's been a lot written on just the spreading of physical culture and the sameness of that physical culture. But there's been some really interesting work. And Mark Singleton's book on yoga talks about this, that you get these kind of hybrids emerging. So the modern system of yoga is a hybrid between the early physical culture calisthenic systems and longer held Indian yogic practices. So what we would think of as, as yoga and this thousand year old practice actually has this infiltration of Swedish gymnastics from the early 20th century because you get that melding together of worlds. And I think that transnationalism is so important and because it marks physical culture as different because I do a bit of teaching on fitness in the ancient world. You know, how soldiers trained in ancient Greece was different to how they trained in ancient Egypt, in China, in India, etc. But when we get to the 1800s, 1900s, we're starting to see systems emerging and they're, they're blending into one another. We'll see regional differences a lot of times, but there is still a general acceptance of new methods and new means from different parts of the world. And they're continually in contact with one another. So someone 
excuse my language, from the back arse of Ireland in the West, you know, and they're only 50 years uh, out of the Irish famine, is writing to a physical culturist in New York saying, how do I get better abdominals? Like, and that is what marks it as different, is that transnational mm. interest and that kind of blending together of all of these different worlds. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and um, I suppose the, the, the kind of, not, it's not an alternative narrative, but the other side of that, of course, is the way that physical culture and nationalism connect together, you know? I mean, I've done a bit of work myself on that connection between uh, kind of 1930s Nazi culture and, mm. and physical culture, which is, there's a, a really strong link there, but um, it feels like that, that building of nationhood and all the issues that go around with that, the troubles that come along with that, are really also really interconnected with physical culture, right? I'm, I'm just thinking about your work, Connor, on kind of physical culture in Ireland and, and that, that being quite specific to nation as well as being part of this transnational dynamic as well. So it feels like both those things are going on at the same time. Yeah, and it's quite an interesting phenomenon. So in the early 1900s, when you get this new wave of strong men and strong women, a lot of the messages about the quote unquote better body tend to be individualistic. And what I mean by this is Eugene Sandow says, you know, if you get six pack abs, big bulging arm muscles, you know, and you have a clearly athletic frame, you will be the conqueror of your social, sexual and financial world. You know, the body will make you a better person. By the time you get to the 1920s, early 1930s, there is more of a governmental interest in improving the physiques of citizens, not as we have now because there's an obesity epidemic or you know, a quote unquote obesity epidemic, but because they are looking towards warfare and there is these anxieties around the body and they're not new. I mean, British concerns about the body in the military context can date to the Crimean War, if not earlier, but there is more of a concern because we get kind of new technologies coming in to spread these anxieties. So Nazi Germany is very adept and so is Mussolini's Italy at filming, you know, these wonderful gymnastic displays with hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, all doing exercises in unison. And there are concerns that you can find in British newspapers from, say, the 1920s, 1930s, that look at how fit and healthy and strong Germany citizens are or Italy citizens are. We need to intervene to make sure our citizens are strong, because if there is another global conflict, you know, the strongest nation will win. And we have never really gotten away from this idea of the government needs to intervene now in the health of individual citizens for broader geopolitical concerns. We have changed the messaging around that, but there is that marrying between nation and individual body, which isn't really there in the 1900s. Pamela Gilbert and George Moss have written about this, that it is the tentative seedlings are there in the 19th century, but it really explodes in the first half of the 20th century where the individual body is reflective of a nation's strength, vim, vigor, whatever terms in the 1930s we want to use. And we still see it infecting or influencing thoughts and ideas today. And even to bring it into like a wrestling context, you know, there's no surprise that Hollywood Hulk, or not Hollywood, but Hulk Hogan, you know, the Amer more American than apple pie, has the big bulging muscles, you know, the glowing tan, the blonde hair, he's playing the guitar, he's the emblem of American patriotism, and he has a muscular, strong and athletic body. So we, we've never, we've never gotten away from it. And it certainly is something that strengthened in the 1920s and 1930s, in particular, this nationhood and, and physique kind of melding into one another. Mm, yeah. yeah, Sam, did you want to come in? I'm um, just thinking about this athleticism and nationhood. I know you had some thoughts. 
Um, yeah, like so I, I think as you started to imply at the end with, with Hulk Hogan being this kind of embodiment of America in the late 80s and 90s, um, obviously these are kind of tropes that continue and but also like I'm interested in um, in the pr- presentation of kind of athletes within wrestling so like um, people like Kurt Angle um, and his Olympic his Olympic success being you know a huge part of his gimmick and his presentation in WWF um, likewise Mark Henry is being you know presented in similar terms and and more recently even um, talking about kind of nationhood and stuff the, the Cody Rhodes mm. um Anthony Agogo kind of feud that's been going on in AEW um, where where Anthony is presented very much on his athletic credentials as well um, yeah so I wondered what whether you could talk talk into that I guess a little bit yeah so I think it's something um, Claire and I we've talked about kind of off camera there there is an interesting uh, distinction I think and it's it bleeds over into one another but you see because I've been going back over old wrestling tapes WCW was always very much the we are an athletic you know, uh, credible, credible body where they would talk about the football backgrounds or the strongman backgrounds or, you know, the mm-hmm. boxing backgrounds of different individuals. And WWE or WWF has tended to be the sports entertainment uh, side mm-hmm. of things where they don't really play those things up unless it is the wrestler's unique selling point. I think it is interesting, the examples you gave of Kurt, Ang- Kurt Angle, pardon me, and Mark Henry, who do have those justifiable labels attached to them. And they that seemed to have been their point of entry into wrestling. Whereas other times it, it seems in the WWF that it wasn't the overarching um, characteristic of these individuals. I have no idea what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say effectively is <laughs> for some federations, the realness of, and the athleticism of the athletes seems to be the selling point. Mm. Whereas for others, it seems to be an element to their gimmick or to their angle. And I find that outside the WWF, the realness, the authenticity of the wrestler as an athlete seems to have been more important, historically speaking, whereas in the WWF, it was part of their gimmick. So Ron Simmons in WCW was this incredible college athlete who can kick your ass, whereas in the WWF, that's kind of a side note to whatever him and JBL are doing at the time. You know, so there's an interesting mm-hmm. distinction, I think, across federations. But someone like Kurt Angle obviously disrupts the entire point that I'm saying where the WWF markets itself entirely on his athleticism. But I would just say in the round, it doesn't, the raw athleticism in the WWF doesn't seem to be as important as the aesthetics of the individual. I think that's a bigger point for them is the gym built body. Whereas in other organizations like WCW or AEW or even Ring of Honor, the athleticism in and of itself is rather important. And that adds authenticity where the WWF since the current iteration of Vince McMahon has been around, not his father, is more interested in the body first, I would say, rather than the athleticism. I mm. think I brought that back around to a coherent <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, it did, right? <laughs> it, kind of t- it kind of tied together at the end. Yeah. But I, there was a good minute there where I was falling into panic dough territory. You know, where you, you're like, this is wrong. I can't stop, but I must continue on. Um, I guess a, a follow-up I was interested in as well might be, um, obviously, wrestling is viewed from a kind of sporting perspective very, very early on as being um, illegitimate and um, representing a kind of threat to the sporting field and the sort of um, values of things like amateurism and I'm thinking about kind of organized professional sport. And I wonder whether that's true also of, um, of, of many kind of physical cultural practices like um, strongman, bodybuilding, um, you know, how w- were they kind of viewed in the same way 
um, as wrestling was from a sporting perspective as as, as non-sporting, I guess. Yeah, so this goes back to my point with the similarities between, say, strength activities, so strong men and strong women, and wrestling um, in a professional sense, because a lot of the early strong men and strong women um, are accused of using fake weights, you know, to kind of make themselves appear more impressive. And there are marks within the strength communities, and there are smart marks within the strength community. So there are people who know that, you know, if I have 300 pounds spray painted on a barbell, and I lift it overhead with one hand, the smart marks will, you know, they'll know, okay, that's probably weighs 50 pounds. But you will have the real marks in public who will say, oh, you know, he's lifted 300 pounds in one arm, how wonderful. And this is something that continues throughout the 20th century in different ways. So the early music hall and vaudeville performers are very adept at fakery and trickery. And there will be high profile call outs where people will go to a strongman show and say in front of the entire audience, that is not 500 pounds. I have brought a 500 pound barbell. It's been verified. I have judges here. If you could please lift this with one hand, we would all be very interested in calling them out. But you do get kind of this history of fakery and trickery and suspicion then about strong men and strong women. And that will then infect in certain degrees the later trajectories of physical culture. So physical culture, broadly speaking, breaks off into bodybuilding, into powerlifting, into Olympic weightlifting, and then more recently into things like CrossFit, Orange Theory Fitness, Zumba, whatever the case may be. Bodybuilding has continually been plagued by um, notions of being fixed or you know, being predetermined. You have powerlifting where there is a huge amount of trickery and there are accusations of falseness or of fakeness and of using fake plates or of using equipment and saying you haven't used the equipment that'll make it easier to do a lift. The sport of strongman has continually been accused of trickery, fakery, even at a World Strongest Man show or more recently at an Arnold Strongman Classic. There are suspicions about the equipment being used, how people are training. So there is this overlap again, I'd say, of trickery, fakery, you know, showmanship, showwomanship, for want of a better phrase. Um, between marks who buy in hook, line and sinker to everything that the athletes are saying, between smart marks who are a little bit more cynical or who know the score. And really, I would think that explains why things like bodybuilding have been viewed suspiciously, aside from a lot of the problems with uh, chemical enhancements, which we will also be crossing over into wrestling, I suspect. But things like powerlifting and strongman or strongwoman uh, competitions as well, they are continually striving to prove their authenticity. Mm -hmm. So a really recent example, if anyone saw during the lockdown period, Half Thor, who's better known as the mountain from Game of Thrones, he lifted, I think, 1,103 pounds in a deadlift, which is a insane amount of weight. But the actual lift itself probably took less than a minute. But the build-up to that event was showing each of the plates being weighed and measured, you know, showing the barbell being weighed and measured, the commentator, who is another strong man, explaining why this is real, why this is authentic, how difficult the lift is. He completes the lift and then he announces that he's going to box Eddie Hall, another strong man, in an exhibition bout. So a lot of the authenticity went out the window in one fell swoop. But I think there is that issue of similar um, distrust or sim- similar cynicism, born from the reality that this is also a, a showman esque um, activity that marks physical culture and wrestling as very comparable worlds. And that's why I do stress the fact that people are born in both rather than, you know, traversing one and the other. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just interested as you're talking, that kind of reminded me of 
uh, the the recent boxing um, <laughs> match, the Logan Paul one, like as you know, and the, some of the accusations around that as well. So it feels like all these things are kind of intersecting around some of the issues that you raise around kind of bakery or pretend or not quite what you see and kind of proving authenticity and it's very it's a very complex landscape I guess isn't it so, yeah um, and I think there's also probably a class element to this as well because the sports that we have the suspicions about are the ones that are born from the circus the music hall the vaudeville stage rather than soccer which the rules I know it's played as a folk game but the rules are you know drawn up by Etonians and Oxbridge you know so there is there is also a legitimacy because the foundations aren't as middle to upper class as well, because yeah. something like the sport of strongman or even powerlifting, the rules aren't devised until the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And even the sport of strongman, that's devised in conjunction with the television program. So it yeah. doesn't have that historicized respectability that box or that football, rugby and cricket would have. So there is also that kind of feeding into it as well, where the origins lie. I think is also quite telling of how it's been received in later decades. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, you write this wonderful, before we come on to the wrestling, I want you just to tell us a little bit about your blog, Connor, uh, because it's just such a one, Sam and I were actually chatting about it before you came, came on the call. Like, um, it's such a wonderful space, such a wonderful kind of collection of ideas. And, um, and yeah, like just sincere thanks for like sharing your research in such an incredibly generous way. It's such an amazing, I don't, I don't want to kind of just like stroke your ego, but I don't, I, but it's an amazing, it's an amazing example of somebody who is doing academic work, kind of important academic work, and yet is is able, willing, and generous enough to share that on a, on a broader and more open access and an accessible way. So, so yeah, so thanks so much for that. I wonder if you could just um, tell us maybe a couple of interesting, I've been reading the Jeff Cates one this week, so that's the point in my mind, but um, yeah, I've read so many of those wonderful blog posts over, over the period you've been writing on that blog, and I wondered if you could just share a couple of your favourite of those posts um, and tell us a bit about that blog and how it came to be. Yeah, perfect. So um, to open with a Mick Foley cheap pop, it's physical culture study um, is the blog name. <laughs> uh, and yeah, thank you. So the blog originated in 2014 when I had finished my undergraduate study and hadn't had a bloody clue uh, what I wanted to do. I was working in an office for a year before I jumped back into the what I thought would be the safety of academia. Um, so the blog itself is kind of my musings on the history of fitness in a variety of different forms. So a lot of it is informed by questions myself and my training partners have had over the years about different things. So I have an article on the history of the squat, which was informed by um, Emer, who was my training partner at the time. There's another article on like the history of the deadlift that John talked about with me at one point in Hercules gym in Dublin. So a lot of it is stuff that, you know, for want of a better phrase, shit talk, you know, in the gym, like, why do we do this? Where did this come about? How do we do that? So a lot of it is looking at the origins of different exercises, different machines, different systems. Here's a diet that someone wrote about in the 1950s. You know, here's the origins of the elliptical machine that's so popular now, or here's an origins of the, the assault bike that everyone seems to want these days. So it really is just short ramblings and musings for me. And it's a lot nicer to write that sort of um, history because A, it's for the public. So I don't need to get it peer reviewed and have my entire being torn down uh, in a very catty remark. But B, it's kind of, you know, bite-sized histories that people actually enjoy reading and learning about. And it's accessible, whereas it's not behind a paywall uh, with regards to academia. And I think some of the 
fondest moments I have of that um, are quite niche articles. So there's an article on an individual called uh, William Murray um, that his great grandniece got in contact with me and said, oh, I think you wrote about a competition that my uncle competed in. Um, you know, would you mind writing an article on his life? So I was able to do a thousand words on this individual who won a regional bodybuilding show that Eugene Sandow put on in the 1900s. And it was just a quite a small niche, but very cool and kind of personal thing um, mm -hmm. for me as well, that you're, you see that there is a benefit to the article itself, that you're able to give a history to something that you know previously wasn't known by others and others would read it and engage with it and ask questions about so i think that's probably oddly my my favorite um article even though it's not one that people would usually gravitate towards i think one of the popular posts is bodybuilders who died too young which shows the macabre nature uh, of the fitness industry itself but there's, there's been a lot of fun things i wrote an article on the history of the treadmill that um, Ted Ed then did an educational video on with these individuals, you know, these caricatures with very small heads walking on old Victorian treadmills, which has been quite fun. But a lot of it, um, a lot of my favorite posts are things that I usually think about midway through a set in the gym mm. and why in the name of God am I doing that? So there's an article <laughs> on 20 rep squats, which I'm really enjoying. I did an article on the Prowler after I bought a Prowler machine on Dundeal, uh, which is kind of like a Craigslist in Ireland. Um, very cheaply, you know, so a lot of my favorite articles stem from the exercises that I hate doing, Bulgarian split squats, Romanian deadlifts, 20 rep squats, and just looking into like, why do these things, like, why do I know about them and why am I doing them? Um, so a lot of it is me kind of coming to terms with why I go to the gym on a regular basis and I haven't quite realized why. The, the last post on the blog will probably just be like, I'm done, dot, dot, and then, you know, disappear. And um, once I come to terms with why I'm doing these exercises that hurt and annoy me, I think then the blog will finish. But for the meantime, one stop shop for the history of strength, fitness, and all of its kind of odd tributaries. Yeah, yeah. great. It's really fascinating how, um, like, I think you, you said at the start as well about, like, the relationship between your body um, as a kind of learning tool and then your research and writing about it and, like, how these ideas are coming out of things that you're doing in the gym. So that kind of things that you're putting your body through and then you're, you know, reflecting on writing, finding out about, because I, I find that really fascinating. People tend to see gym spaces as like, you know, that horrible space that you have to go to, to keep the pounds off or to, you know, be able to run to a bus stop or whatever. But actually you can, you know, they're quite rich um, culturally and historically, aren't they? And, um, and they're also like spaces to tie it into a kind of art and theatre context they're quite they can be quite experimental spaces as well like the idea of coming up with with a workout routine or combining different exercises um so the, yeah that's that's something i found really fascinating about the blog um putting into context these things that we do in you know cultural context yeah and i think actually on that point um someone who i've annoyed at multiple times with very gushing emails is uh broderick chow who does a much better job uh elocuting that experimental place that the gym can be and the kind of embodied sense of self that one gets through training and the creativity and the enjoyment and the, uh, I suppose, self-exploration that one can find in a horrible set of squats or clean and presses or whatever one's doing. Uh, on multiple occasions, I've written him a very gushing email immediately after reading one of his articles. And I don't think they're ever coherent. It's usually just summed <laughs> up as, you're great, keep doing this, I love it. Um, but yeah, it is interesting because I think if you're, not embedded in a gym space, it is just a chore and a pain in the mm -hmm. ass. Whereas if you're very much embedded in it, it is 
integral to one's sense of self. And I think a lot of people saw that when COVID shut down all the gyms mm-hmm. and people started talking about their mental health deteriorating because they weren't able to go to the gym. And it's just it's an interesting, I think, reminder for the general public that, you know, irregardless of decisions that had to be taken for public health measures, because I'm not one of those gym goers who also overlaps with the far right, that's a different podcast for a different day. <laughs> but there is, a, there is an embodied sense of self. There is a, a tapping into one's own experiential uh, awareness that emerges in the gym that I think doesn't happen elsewhere. And on this last point of rambling, there's a idea of this kind of extra daily consciousness that one gets into or like a flow state that one can attain through sport or different activities. And I think for a lot of people, the gym is one of the few places where they can tap into that. And it's no surprise that a lot of the early writers in the 1900s wrote kind of early tracks on meditation through exercise Mm -hmm. and how exercising can bring people into this kind of no thought space which is dropped out of the modern fitness industry which is all about detox teas on instagram but i I think it it speaks to that kind of extra daily space that one can find in the gym yeah yeah um also good and all by way of kind of (laughs) by way of introduction to um to thinking (laughs) i think we could talk about all of this stuff more and more but um let's let's turn to wrestling and uh, as as last time when we talked to sam benjamin and i i kind of drift away a little when we start talking about wcw but this this podcast and the one with sam the previous one with sam i've now been watching wcw stuff for the first time ever so um so thank you connor for for inspiring me in that direction again um and i'll kind of hand over the baton to, to, to Sam to think a bit more about, about the wrestling that you sent through to us. Sure. Um, so we have, you selected kind of three matches um, for us to, to look at and reflect on. Um, do you want to, I, I guess maybe we'll go in chronological order mm-hmm. and start with um, the one that I actually watched this morning. Um, big, and it was really short. I was quite pleased with that because I didn't have much time. <laughs> Uh, Big Daddy versus Giant Haystacks from 1981, I believe, uh, at Wembley Arena. So to talk us through why why you kind of picked that and um, and made us watch that. <laughs> yeah, it is very much it made you watch it um, as well. I suppose when I was thinking of three quest- or three matches, I thought about three different facets of wrestling um, that obviously all in- overlap, but can be seen quite distinctly as well. So I thought, what's one of the most exciting crowd reactions I've seen? what's one of the most exciting matches I've seen and then what's one of the most exciting storylines that I've seen and you can probably guess um, as we go through them which is which so the reason I chose the Big Daddy Giant Haystacks Wembley Arena in 1981 is that this is one of the first major I suppose I would say superstar clashes that I was exposed to again as a child through my grandmother who's a huge Big Daddy fan as I said my introduction to British wrestling was always very patchy but I know in this instance, you know, we have Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks are the tag team partners who are eventually, you know, split up and are now going to clash in this incredible showpiece uh, at Wembley Arena. And even the fact that it's a, you know, a very large and vocal and excited audience in Wembley speaks a lot to their popularity at the time. It's not the headline act, if I can remember correctly. I think it might have been Mark Rollerball Rocco uh, was the headline act, which probably makes more sense from a wrestling purist point of view. But as a spectacle, it's really bad like it's you know it's kind of kick punch shove kick punch shove pause kick punch shove but when you bring the crowd reaction into it and just how over both wrestlers are i think it just shows how 
dementedly wonderful British wrestling was in the 1980s that the crowd, this is, you know, Hogan versus Rock at WrestleMania levels of like crowd engagement at certain parts. I think it's amazing to see, looking back on it, how these two Goliaths, and I mean, like in a physical and in a uh, symbolic sense, were able to command the crowd with the most basic and rudimentary exercise skill sets and how that added to the excitement of the, of the bout itself. So it's a knockout only match, but for some reason the knockout can also mean throwing someone over the top rope. But there's just so much about British wrestling that I love, like the referee getting involved. For some reason, he falls over and they never really, uh, bring, that's never really a talking point. It's kind of like Chekhov's going, like if the referee falls over, use the referee falling over. Uh, but they don't. And it is just two 40 stone plus men kind of bumping into one another for four minutes. And that's all it needed to be. It didn't need to be high flying spots. I sound like Jim Cornette right now. But there was just something uh, for me. I don't know how Samuel you felt it. For me, there is something special about this. Even though as I'm watching, I'm like, this is objectively very basic wrestling. But I'm also hooked by this. And I'm kind of going with the sea of the crowd's emotions. Um, and for kind of a six, seven-year-old, as I was, and I was watching these old tapes, this was like the most exciting thing that I could possibly have encountered. So when I was asked to choose a wrestling match, I thought I'd, I'd do homage to uh, Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks rather than Cat Weasel. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I say you, you made us watch it. I, I did enjoy it, actually. <laughs> um, and I enjoyed it because I was... It, it kind of just made me think about how much can be achieved purely through spectacle and, you know, anticipation and um, atmosphere and how much actually all of that was really achieved without them even coming to blows. Like mm. there was, you know, the pageantry around it, the the Big Daddy Goldberg-esque entrance from the locker room deep in Wembley Arena. Um, yeah, like his the amount of different people that accompanied him and the music and the crowd singing along to the music as well. Like there was so much, so many points of entertainment that didn't involve any wrestling whatsoever. That, yeah, it was just, I thought, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and it kind of reminded me, like, I was thinking when you sent through the matches, like what would my matches be if I was to, if I was asked to do this? And I think one of my earliest ones would be, like one of the first matches I remember seeing is, is Andre Hogan. Um, from from that WrestleMania, and it had a kind of bit of that kind of vibe. Like the, I think the hype was bigger than the actual stuff that happened in the ring, and it got through on on hype. I don't know whether Claire, what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I can see that connection between those matches. I, I actually would often play this match when I started kind of doing a lot of work on wrestling, and when actually before when we when we first set up Resurgence and and we're working with the Being Human Festival, and this was the match that I would have in the background when I gave my kind of speed talks about like why wrestling should be taken seriously by academic audiences. Um, and um, and I, so it's always been quite a special one for me, I think this. And I agree, something about the way that the crowd invests in it and them all singing like, we shall not be moved. And it's, um, and it's kind of, it's, it's kind of compelling um, because you, you you know, this by, this by no means the best wrestling match that's ever occurred, like, or even close to. But there's something really compelling about this match. I think partly because I absolutely understand what the characters are doing. So I know who I'm cheering and know who I'm booing. And there's something really satisfying in knowing that. Like, it's actually, it's actually not a 
regular occurrence in contemporary wrestling like because most characters like have people that like them people that don't even if they're presented as faces or heels like whereas this everyone in there were on the side <laughs> of big daddy and everyone didn't want john haystacks to win that everyone and there's something quite compelling about being in an audience for all cheering for the same thing. It goes like mm. that kind of connection, we talk about physical culture connection. There's that connection with football where you're in like a crowd of people all wanting the same thing at once. Like, it's a rare thing to happen in wrestling, whereas in sport more generally, it's there quite a lot. So I, I really liked it for that reason as well. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think just the the power of pauses within this, mm. like I was, I was a huge fan of uh, like a Ric Flair entrance. And now actually Charlotte Flair does a great example of this with this being able to command the audience through pausing and not doing anything and the stillness. I think when Big Daddy and John Haystacks are squaring up, when there's the pausing, the looking, the hit stepping back, looking, it's just remarkable how these very limited wrestlers are just electrifying. And like something that I love doing is going over old British wrestling matches because it is this, it is this wonderful point of comparison with the WWF at that time or with WCW. And it's worlds apart. Even someone like, looking at old Les Kellett matches, which is what I was doing yesterday um, with my poor long-suffering wife who has to indulge me at different moments. <laughs> there are these characters that have overlaps in American wrestling, but have generated into something different. I think Big Daddy is like this Hogan figure mixed with Big Show or, you know, mixed with Yokozuna almost, just for thinking in terms yeah. of size. And the power of his popularity. I mean, my grandmother had you know all of the was it the dandy where big daddy had his own strip mm. she had t-shirts she had books she had newspaper cuttings mm. my first experience of reading training logs or you know training materials was big daddy interviews in the sun where he talks about like eating 20 loaves of bread and drinking you know four liters of milk every day i think the match is so interesting and explain to people why british wrestling was popular or not maybe why but how popular British wrestling could be because obviously British wrestling now means much more exciting and open and progressive styles of wrestling but there is something unique in looking at these two large men fighting and something that Sam mentioned in the last podcast about wanting wrestling to look like a fight this did look like a fight I mean there was there was no move or skill set there that I would say well you wouldn't like you wouldn't do a hurricane run in a pub car park I would hope the fight here, you know, it looks like a proper brawl. They have set it up properly so it's good versus evil. You know, it's a great, it's the the baby face versus the heel. You're with them the whole time and it's an easy story to follow. And the, you get a sense that every move mattered. I think that's the thing that I loved about this is that for the crowd, every time their bellies collide, that mattered. There was nothing wasted in this because the crowd is so with them they want to see big daddy win as you mentioned claire there's an electrified atmosphere in it and it's no surprise that you know when big daddy knocks him over or knocks him out by throwing him over the top rope still not exactly sure how that's a knockout but <laughs> never mind um like that there's a great sense of euphoria but even though i think it's only about four minutes in length like it it, it feels mm. important and every move mattered within that and the crowd are you know jubilant when they get the result that they want and you just see that even from big daddy's entrance they're willing him on and there's a sense of investment in it mm. that is not in any way proportional to the wrestling that they see and british wrestling was so much more than big men kick punch kick punch repeat but it's still you know it still was able to captivate them in such a mm. wonderful way so i think 
as I said, when I was thinking about the dichotomy of the crowd, the storyline, the match itself, for me, this is just such a kind of a critical moment in my own wrestling viewing was looking at this tape because it's the first time I really saw that electrified crowd um, that, you know, if I'd been watching WWF at that time, I would have seen every time, you know, Hogan did a leg drop. But for me, it is one of those things that I introduce it to people when I'm talking about British wrestling in class. This is the clip that I show first because it's the hook because they're like, well, why is this? Why is this popular? And then you can kind of go from there. So it's been quite an influential part of my own kind of wrestling viewership. Um, I'm very much aware of all of the problems of focusing the entire organization's, you know, uh, attention on Big Daddy and Haystacks over more agile, fit and athletic wrestlers. So I, I can take it with the caveat, but I do think it's a wonderful four minute thing to watch. And it's, it's Wembley Stadium, you know, it's Wembley Arena and it's, it's two larger than life characters colliding. What more could one want? Yeah, I, I, I thought as well, one of my like lasting thoughts on it was, um, like you say, like how, how popular it was, but also like how, just how British it was. Like mm. the, it kind of had like a, almost like a village fate kind of vibe, like when he comes out, like in a weird way. And I don't think anyone that's not been to a village fate would understand that. <laughs> um, but also like, it made me think like, you know, if, if British wrestling today, like contemporary British wrestling, I think there's a danger that we, forget or lose things like you know that we that we're maybe too dismissive of stuff like big daddy because there's something really special about that kind of british reception to big daddy his presentation his music everyone singing the song um probably all knowing what his limitations are no one caring that that, that he has physical limitations like it's easy to look back at that and go oh that's ter terrible wrestling oh that was the death of british wrestling blah 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 but that probably just ignores a kind of much more um a much more a much deeper and more complex like appreciation of him on behalf of those people that were so excited about that match um yeah yeah I, and i i think so i had a, i was in the car for five hours yesterday um so i listened back to a lot of the uh, previous episodes um so sugar Dunkerton mentioned like southern wrestling uh, mm -hmm. in america and having spent two years in texas and being able to speak to people who kind of grew up on the von erics but also uh, terry funk there's a different audience in southern wrestling in the united states and uh, that is distinct from the new york aesthetic or even say modern uh, wrestling fans and there it was a hugely problematic audience at various moments um as kind of jim Cornette's uh, federations played on at various points quite astutely but british wrestling has yeah i'd say a village fat like working class like unabashedly working class celebration of strength of good and bad of the wrong ones being thrown over the top rope when it needed to be of just genuinely tough men like even i've mentioned already like les kellett is the kind of clown comedian wrestler but they always stress how tough he is and he has a pain threshold that no, none of his opponents um will ever be able to match so i was watching a les kellett match yesterday and i can't remember his opponent but he's speaking you know he's like you won't do that to me les you won't do that to me les and then suddenly les does that to him where he slaps him in the face and rides him around the ring like a donkey like there is this kind of unabashedly wonderful working class element to it that i think big daddy seemed to encapsulate in a really interesting way and i know he's divisive and i know he's been barred from multiple you know wrestling hall of fame conversations uh, because he is seen as the problematic side of british wrestling because that angle was pushed to the detriment of more agile and athletic and exciting wrestlers. But I do think you lose something in the history of British wrestling if you don't acknowledge the popularity of 
a giant haystacks of a big daddy um you know regardless of their actual skill sets because it shows in much the same way if one's talking about a hogan or even a goldberg the skill set doesn't necessarily always matter it's what one can do with the audience and big daddy was always in tune with his audience in the 1980s i think that it's always a shame when he gets dismissed just based on his athletic ability because there is more to that as a professional wrestler I wonder if also, along with class, I speak here as a proud Mancunian, uh, there's, there's also a Manchester link, a, a, a northern link, sorry, a kind of broader northern link. Um, and it's interwoven, interestingly, with like the history of rugby league. Um, mm. So Big Daddy played rugby league, his, this his grandson, right, Al Crabtree, played rugby league, I think it was his grandson, or nephew, nephew maybe, also played rugby very high, to a very high level, like played international rugby league. So there's this sort of really interesting connection, not just even with class, but also with the North. I don't want to over-egg that one, because there are obviously wrestlers from around the country, like, I'm not just saying it's a particularly Northern thing, but it, it is this, I always associate Big Daddy with, like, Halifax, like, he is a Yorkshireman, and that that's really important that he's a Yorkshireman, as well as being a kind of working-class man, like, because he was he was a miner, I think, at some point, at one point, like, um, I can't imagine him going down mines, <laughs> maybe, maybe he was much smaller when he did that, but, like, there is that sense that, of a, of him kind of embedded in a kind of very much English northern landscape as well, which I think mm. is... Um, which I think is important alongside the class issues that you've brought up. Well, I think it's interesting when I talk about um, British sport in the latter half of the 20th century with students, I make the point that, you know, Margaret Thatcher said she was a big daddy fan while while simultaneously vilifying football. So I think it's interesting that she tried to connect with her roots more so through big daddy while kind of eschewing another game, which would have had very, like a very strong popularity in the North. So I think, the northern element is also quite important and this idea of a salt of the earth you know aesthetic to it as well which some did try to use for political gain uh, we won't mention yes. margaret thatcher again on this podcast but it is just an interesting <laughs> example and i think yeah like my grandmother her influence in it she had very strong connections to yorkshire and leeds in particular and that like that's so in my own upbringing the, the kind of more northern side of things is also integral to my engagement with wrestling. So for the, then um, to segue, to, uh, one of the things I'm always interested in wrestling is contrasts. And I don't think <laughs> you could find more of a contrast than the next one. Um, so Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio Jr. from Halloween Havoc 1997. Um, yeah, why, why have we gone from Giant Haystacks and Big Daddy to these two kind of in- incredible luchadors? I would think it was obvious. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the wrestling, I think, it just speaks for itself. Um, so I, I was thinking about matches that had a influence on me um, and like kind of uh, burned in the back of my memory. So Big Daddy Giant Haystacks is the first tape that I kind of come across with this huge crowd reaction to a match of importance. This Halloween Havoc match was one of the first WCW tapes I got access to. So growing up in Ireland, for whatever reason, it was much, much easier to consume WWF then later WWE content than mm. it was WCW. So I had that wonderful experience of tape trading and then getting like very worn down VHS tapes. I think there's a wonderful study to be done on that, that tape trading community of the 1990s in particular. But the Rey Mysterio Eddie Guerrero match was one of the first times I'd actually seen a WCW event. And it was one of the first times that I saw a style of wrestling because we had some 
high flyers in the WWF, you know, or we would do occasional like high flying spots. But the pace of the Rey Mysterio Eddie Guerrero match, the intensity, the athleticism, the skill was like watching a completely different sport for me. And the thing that I love about this match, and even looking back on it now, is immediately I know what's going on in this match. Although the match, you know, is not to 60 in like 0.1 of a second and it doesn't let up its intensity whatsoever. I know what's going on. I know that Eddie Guerrero is the bad guy in this. I know that Rey Mysterio is fighting for pride, but also to save his mask. I know who to cheer for. I know who's the villain. It ends wonderfully with Rey Mysterio beating Eddie Guerrero. Immediately, Eddie Guerrero knocks him over the head and returns to heel status because he again wants to remind you that he is the heel. So I chose this match because the athleticism, the skill and the intensity is and was kind of unmatched in my viewing experience at that time it had such a deep impression on me and then i you know cheered like a madman when i saw these people emerge in the wwf so i think there was something special about it and wcw in particular always has like a magical like halo in my in my childhood memory because it was much harder to consume and occasionally you know when you would get the tape of say ddp being what was your man's name laparka you know, where he does the diamond cutter on, um, was it? No, it wasn't Kevin Nash. It was Scott Hall uh, out of nowhere, you know, and just like erupting like crazy. There's always a special moment. So a lot of the WCW matches I would have seen are born in my, burned in my memory, as I said. And this match just had everything from an athletic point of view. And I think even today in 2021, you would be hard pressed not to say that this is a wonderful five-star match. And I think the thing that I thought was so clever about it is even though it's so intense it's so physical there are high spots throughout the entire match you know the story of it as well like you because I came to that very ignorant of the storyline the build-up because as I said I was just given this tape with no context whatsoever to it and yet I, I could follow it and I thought aside from the physicality of it there was a real genius on their parts as well to be able to still tell that story of who to cheer for and what's going on and even just Eddie Guerrero's mastery of heel tactics, like where he's trying to rip the mask off halfway through the match. And again, I know this is you know well-worn fair in other federations, but coming from a WWF and then from, say, a British wrestling point of view where Kendo Nagasaki's unmasking was one of the most anticlimactic things I'd ever seen, you know, there was such importance attached to a match that I was so ignorant of. So I think there's the athleticism, but there's also that in-ring genius that, I think probably is one of the reasons why that cruiserweight division in WCW was spoken about in such hallowed terms uh, for so many years. So I'm interested in what you two thought about, because for me, this is the match that I show someone who says, I don't really care about wrestling. You know, this is the 13 minutes that I need to show them how impressive and incredible wrestling can be at breakneck speeds with such athleticism. It's when I want to prove to them that, yes, it's predetermined, but it comes with a physicality that is unmatched in different sports. Yeah, so like I'd I'd seen this match a couple of times, um, and I'd kind of I think as it at that time I was watching. I, I, I think, like you said, like my I think for people of our generation, access to wrestling when we were younger was always li- was always limited in some way, unless you had unless you had Sky and you watched WWF on a regular basis, which I didn't at that point. My consumption of wrestling was always through VHSs, which were always out of date by a few years at least uh or there would be tapes of 
my, my best friend at, at primary school would tape either Raw or Nitro off TNT and we would watch either one of them on the Saturday. So I kind of, I, I feel like I was watching some Nitro around this time. Certainly by 98, I was, was watching Nitro and I was then familiar with Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio. But I didn't never saw any of the pay-per-views because you couldn't get WCW pay-per-views, I don't think, at that time. Um, but then I did, I think when DVDs started bec becoming a thing, I had uh, some early 2000s when Mysterio was in um, WWF, they released a, 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 a compilation of Mysterio's greatest matches. And that was one of the ones that was on there. And I was able to go back and watch all of those famous Mysterio matches from late 1990s. So like the Di Malenko matches from Nitro, multiple Eddie Guerrero matches. Um, and I think also like maybe slightly before that, I'd seen some ECW tapes. So I remember seeing an ECW, I'll get to my point eventually. I remember having an ECW tape, which was from I think 98, and that was Jerry Lynn and Rob Van Dam. And the reason I, I bring that match up is I think the Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio match is really pivotal in like shaping a new kind of style in professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. Like I know, it, of course, it's Mexican, but that this was the first point in which Mexican wrestling was really starting to kind of like penetrate into mainstream American wrestling. It's the first time we were seeing, you know, luchadors on on Nitro. On um, there was a few on WWF, but not to the extent of of WCW. So it's like you can all you start to see um, the Mexican style, the high flying, the highly choreographed, um, intricate moves blended with like American wrestling storytelling. Um, and it's just it's just a great like I, I I think about how wrestling progressed from that point onwards, and it certainly is like pivotal I think in in the development of that more athletic hybrid style. Um, and one and one thing before we get Claire's opinion, I was um, watching it for this like third or fourth time. I was just really struck by Eddie Guerrero's fringe. <laughs> like how can you like you? And we talk a lot about and I talk a lot about with, with wrestlers details like taking a detail and making it really really special the fringe when he comes out and it's just covering his eyes and he just has to he has to kind of look up because of the fringe and it's just the snottiest villainous like look because of that fringe and i think that's brilliant just those little details um which just sums up why eddie guerrero is just so was just so good like just so so good um yeah claire <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I agree. Like as as is now well documented on this podcast, uh, my knowledge of WCW is really limited, and I'm just starting to explore. And it's kind of been quite joyous actually because I'm just beginning to explore a bunch of matches that I have not seen before, and this is one of them. And um, although I ha I think I knew about it, but I'd never actually seen it. I don't think. Um, and yeah, I think like for me, the thing that really stood out. I've been thinking quite a lot this week about logic. Um, and the importance of logic. And I think one of the things that sometimes in contemporary wrestling, again, not wanting to bring Jim Cornette <laughs> directly into this podcast, um, but um, one of the things that kind of strikes me is that you, they're amazing athletes, but the logic of it is maybe, is sometimes lacking where you're like, well, why are you doing that move? Like, it looks amazing. Don't get me wrong. Like, good on you. Brilliant. But like you want to batter this guy, don't you? And it goes back to what we were talking about, about like it happens to look like a fight. And in this match, one of the things that really stood out for me is, yes, it was really quick and physically incredible, but also really logical. Like I, I could see the moves made sense to me in a way that sometimes I look at sort of a high flying cruiserweight match. And I'm like, well, I really appreciated your gymnastics 
but I'm not convinced that you hated each other at all. Like, and, and that might not be a problem at all, but but I, I really appreciated the way they managed to meld those two things together, the kind of logical storytelling of wrestling and um, and the physical, the kind of like amazing physicality of it. So for me, it was that combination that really stood out, I think. And to show my uh, TNA fandom at one point, that, mm. that was the downfall of the X Division in yes. TNA, is that you had these, the equivalent of the cruiserweights, like high-flying, but there, it was rare to get a coherency in it. It was the spot for the spot's sake, whereas in this, it really matters. Like, if you look at this mm. match, Eddie Guerrero wants to win, and he will do anything that he needs to. And Rey Mysterio plays the wonderful, battling blue-eyes, you know, baby face, who will pull it out at the end. But it doesn't matter because Eddie Guerrero is going to knock him out after the match anyway. So there's a wonderful coherency to everything. Every, every single move matters in this really wonderful way. And I think, Sam, your point on this kind of crossing or this kind of um, bringing that luchador style into America. I think Eddie Guerrero, one of the wonderful things about his trajectory, and unfortunately, you know, it ends so early, but in his lie, cheat and steal era, he has this wonderful ability to use spots from different decades, but also from different regions. And I'm thinking about the time where he loosens his boot and Kurt Angle tries to do the ankle lock on him and the boot comes off and you know, so what, what's going on? And it was just this wonderful throwback to older styles of wrestling. I think he's a very interesting figure in transcending regions and also um, like decades as well. And being able to have this like wonderful heel playbook that he's able to use, which you see here, knocking uh, Rey Mysterio at the end of the match, trying to rip off his mask in the middle of the match. And that's seeming like it's the most dastard. I remember watching that as a kid and I didn't even know who these people were at this time because I'm only getting, you know, a VHS every two, two to three months. And just being shocked that somebody's trying to rip off the mask and the commentary does a wonderful job of playing up the importance of what's going on as well. So I think, yeah, the big daddy giant haystacks is when I'm trying to show how important the crowd can be this match is what I showed people and showed students when I'm trying to show, yes, it's predetermined, but we can create an atmosphere of this really matters. And, you know, that they're both trying to win. And it really matters if they win or not. Like Eddie Grau tries everything to win. And you buy into that for whatever it is, the 10, 12 minutes. So I think it's a wonderful example of two athletes, maybe not necessarily at the height of their powers just yet, but you're, you're seeing just such um, creativity and cleverness in what they're trying to do and the intention that they bring to the match, which as Claire, you were saying, you don't always get in other kind of cruiserweight high-flying matches where the gymnastics of it is the point of it rather than the storytelling itself. Yeah, I think it's, it's a masterclass in kind of urgency and, mm. and desire to, to, to win as well and expressing a desire to win but still being able to do those spectacular high-flying things that obviously people like in terms of high spots and stuff like that. And also one last point on it as well is it, it's part of, um, you, we can just understand a lot of the kind of best wrestling matches by the, by the partnerships and the partnerships that endure over time. And it's, it's just one of those examples, isn't it? It's Eddie Mysterio and they wrestled countless times across continents and promotions. And there's a kind of a knowledge of each other, but also a kind of, um it's the it's the partnerships isn't it it's the you, when you find a great partner in a in a in a partnered sport like wrestling you 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 know each other really well there's counters within counters eddie knows all of ray mysterio's strengths and he knows how to he knows how to drive the match and structure the match and get the best out of mysterio and and get all of his own stuff across as well 
Um, so yeah, the, 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 so the next match, the final match um, that you selected is uh, Cactus Jack versus Triple H from the Royal Rumble 2000, I believe, mm. at Madison Square Garden, um, which I watched yesterday. And again, for it's one I, again I watched quite recently. I think mm. right? certainly when I came up on the network, I'd already, you know, when the network tells you you've been mm. watching something. So I have watched it fairly recently. Um, so t- yeah, tell us about this one because um, I, I remember this one actually before 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 you go into it. Is this the one that was on Channel Four? Or was this the Royal Rumble that was shown on Channel oh, Four, like think. for free free to air? I... It may well have been. Um, we we were using a dodgy box by that time, um, so we were we weren't getting it uh, legally. Um, so I'm not I'm not quite sure because we got it from an American provider. Uh, through some sort of satellite chicanery. Well, set, set this up, this match up for us, and I'll just Google and find out why, <laughs> whether it was on yeah. Channel 4 or not. But find out is Connor outside the statute of limitations on copyright. <laughs> um, so I think for, for me, as I said, I was looking for the best crowd, Big Daddy Giant Haystacks, the best kind of match. For me, this is the best storyline because there's so much going on within the build up to this. And I know. Other people might be saying, well, why didn't you pick Hell in the Cell, which is the kind of follow on from this, mainly because Mankind's return at that year's WrestleMania was very problematic uh, for me as a fan because it kind of ruined this wonderful retirement send off. But going back to the beginning, we have this wonderful storyline. It's the start of the kind of Stephanie McMahon, Triple H, um, you know, evil corporation beginning to take over the WWF. The genesis of this, I suppose, is Mankind and The Rock have a pink slip on a pole match which The Rock wins, so Mankind is fired. We get this wonderfully dangerous unionization angle to this, where The Rock and all of the good guy wrestlers come out and say, we will walk out en masse if Mankind does not return to the WWF, and Triple H and Stephanie Yield bring Mick Foley back and give him a title shot. I say problematic because why Vince McMahon would want to bring up the idea of unionization of his workers um, is a very bold, very bold step. But this kind of evolves into this wonderful metamorphosis of mankind. I know, Claire, you've talked about this quite a lot, but Mick Foley, for me, is one of the geniuses of his generation in able, being able to traverse Dude Love, Mankind, Mick Foley, and Cactus Jack, as well as the genesis of why I chose this is there's a wonderful promo where you know Triple H is in the middle of the ring. He's trashing Mankind. Mankind comes out and says, you know, you're right. I can't take you on. Uh, I'm not the man that I once was. I can't be that wrestler that needs, you know, that can actually defeat you. But I know someone who can, and it's Cactus Jack. And Triple H sells it wonderfully, you know, where he's physically frightened of Cactus Jack. And Cactus Jack comes down to the ring and beats the ever-loving SH1T out of him. And the wonderful thing about that is Triple H had done that like three years previously because they'd already done this angle where Dude Love wasn't going to take on Triple H, Mankind wasn't going to take on Triple H, but Cactus Jack will, and I think that's a street fight. I think where he, I just remember he runs down to the ring with a trash can and mm-hmm. just like plants it on Triple H's head straight away. So they've kind of recycled the storyline, but there is this just importance given to it. And I think the build up to it with Mankind being fired, the wrestlers bringing Mankind back by threatening to walk off en masse, mankind coming back and then evolving into cactus jack and i was very much one of those marks that cactus jack was completely different to mankind was completely different 
to Dude Love. I could debate the strengths and weaknesses of each of those characters with you as if they were all different wrestlers. So when Cactus Jack comes back and they have this incredibly brutal match by the standards of the WWF at that time, barbed wire in a Vince McMahon match is really quite a rare thing. I know he had toyed with the idea at times of trying to bring in more of that kind of Mankind or Mick Foley, Terry Funk deathmatch aesthetic and usually pushed it away because of sponsors and because of the public relations disaster that that would bring. But it's an incredibly violent match. You buy into it. The storyline around it is fantastic. It will lead on to an even better match, arguably, at the Hell in a Cell where Cactus Jack will retire and there is this wonderful send-off that is then spoiled by Linda McMahon several weeks later when she brings him back for WrestleMania. So I see it as... For, for me, the kind of wonderful end to a great storyline, I know it continues on, but I think the retirement angle is slightly diluted then by the very kind of quick return. Mm. So if you look at the match itself, there's a physicality to it. There is a, I would say like a light or a diet death match aesthetic to it, where we have the barbed wire, we have the thumbtacks, we have the suplex on the uh, wooden pallet which I only learned recently, one of the wooden parts went into Triple H's calf and he had to pull it out. Um, so, you know, Triple H used it to kind of show his hardcore credentials as well, in a sense. But the storyline to it, and for me, just the metamorphosis was so wonderful, that promo. And I was trying to find it yesterday and I couldn't, where Cactus Jack is revealed once more and Triple H sells it, that this is the most terrifying thing, was the reason why I chose this one for that kind of storyline, very reductive, mm-hmm. like three-part uh, decision I made. So I'm interested in how you two engage with this, because for me, this is one of the better storylines from that kind of period. And I, I really, I don't have the words to express how powerful I think Mick Foley could play with the like psychological side to his wrestling character, where you did get the sense of, you know, he needs to be dude love for this, but then he can bring out Mankind for this and he can bring out Cactus Jack for this. And I know he played with that quite a lot. But for me, this was the best example of him being able to evolve or change into what was needed for that moment. Yeah, I mean, Claire, I know you've spent quite a lot of time recently looking at Mick Foley and the, and the three different characters. So do you want to you kick things off? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I love this match. I think it's um, an incredible piece of work from, from all involved, actually. It's like, it's a really sort of special match. Um, I'm really fascinated by Foley. I think, I, I think I've sort of organically begun thinking about him, like over the past few months, I suddenly caught myself thinking about him loads, like in lots of the writing I'm doing. I suddenly catch myself thinking, oh, what would Foley be doing? It's, it's really interesting. Like, it's really interesting. I, I didn't realize quite how influenced my mind had been by his work, but I think more and more I'm going to get that sense. And I think, yeah, like, this, this, for me, one of the kind of massive strengths of this match are the visuals of his face, mm-hmm. like, um, which is an ex- incredibly expressive face anyway, but like, just the way that he kind of looks up. He, actually talking of fringes he kind of <laughs> he kind of looks through his hair and like and it and like you just get this sense he could just take anything and also that he loves it like and I'm fascinated by wrestlers who um and Folly is the king of this who wrestle 
who wrestle because they like the pain. I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to, I'm not quite sure I'm necessarily dealing with words, but I'm, I'm really fascinated. Like this is, and this is how you feel all the way through. Like he has that moment where he's kneeling on the floor and he's saying to like Triple H, come on then, like, yeah, hit me harder, hit me hard. Like, and there's that, and I'm, I'm kind of, I find that a very compelling character because I think a lot of wrestlers must have that in them that there's some kind of, it's almost a, it's almost a kind of addiction to a pain like a kind of type of pain like can I can I stand this can I can I and you get that sense all the way through this character um, and, and the visuals are just so impressive all the way through even to the end where like he looks up kind of face blooded and all these sort of thumbtacks in his face like it's, I mean it's kind of horrible yes but you 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 just get the sense that he will will just stand like you just throw everything at him and he will and he will take anything and, and for me that's the power of 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 the Cactus Jack full character. Um, so yeah, I thought I thought it was terrific. And I, I also noticed kind of that that um also not noticed previously that the um Triple H's leg is horrendous. Like actually they draw attention to it in the commentary later on, which I hadn't quite realized before. But like, yeah, when they, he goes through the pallets and he ends up, it must be like quite a large piece of wood to go into his leg because it's really brutal. Like they kind of at one point kind of like they clearly somebody kind of in backstage going right kind of close up to this injury it looks really good mm. and it looks really good like it you know you really get and, and he kind of sells it at various points as well he kind of has a, kind of incorporates a little bit of a limp into it which for me just sort of increases the importance of it or like the like what's on the line mm. here like these guys are willing to go through this um yeah i i, I thought it was terrific yeah uh, it was on Channel Four as well, just sort of, which I, I which I do think is quite important in terms of um, wider context because this was definitely a period which was like peak popularity of, mm. of Attitude Era. Like um, I remember watching it um, with a friend from school. I think the day after, maybe it had been on or something like that, and um, it was definitely like a moment where I think for the first time, like there were more, there was more than one person that I knew that liked wrestling. Like everyone at school liked wrestling at that point um and everyone was talking about and watching that match and and, it, and actually like as well it's um like you mentioned the incorporation of like barbed wire i'm fairly sure that that might be like the first time that barbed wire has been incorporated in a wwe match and also probably thumbtacks as well i'm not unless was there thumbtacks in undertaker mankind from the year before i did the, the hell in a cell and maybe there was i think there may have been yeah but i think that was very much not a planned thing i think that might have mm. been a like let's buy some time make sure make is still breathing yeah uh, but i and i think triple h does a, a, a fantastic job of selling pretty much mm. everything yeah to, to you know really really well um like the, the the shots to the head with the barbed wire bat sells really really well um everything's given kind of space and i think that's um uh, one thing about kind of hardcore matches, death matches, I think you have to give space to to the objects, and you have to kind of treat the objects and the the implications of the ob objects with a certain kind of reverence, and mm -hmm. and let them kind of you know do their job and not undersell them. And I think they do that really well. Like every every kind of point of violence is really well considered and has a kind of place in the story. Um, yeah, and that, like his his Foley's facial expressions are just just fantastic. And also, I think the way that Foley's backstory and like real life story is starting to be incorporated as well and had been throughout that whole year which a lot of people say was one of the turning points in their kind of war with WCW was was the way that you know the, the Mick Foley winning the title was, was the, the point which they beat Nitro wasn't it and then Nitro never caught up again which was a, which was the year before 
um, around the time of the leading up to the Rumble where he faced the Rock the year before. Um, but they mentioned so they mentioned things like the, the significance of Madison Square Garden to Foley because mm. he grew up at this point. His books like you know massively you know world bestseller, isn't it? So people know the fact that you know he has this kind of connection to Madison Square Garden. Um, and then, then again, like Claire, you said, um, like him, him liking the pain. Like it's interesting when you were saying that. Like I can see, yeah, Cactus Jack, someone who looks like he likes pain, whereas Mankind kind of comes across as someone who who really doesn't like pain, but has feels like he has to go through this pain. Yeah, for Mankind, it's a penance. Yeah, mm. like it's like almost like an atonement for Cactus Jack. He's just like, I don't care what you throw at me. I'm I'm a badass. Mm. Like so so that in essence, they they both. They both like have this addiction to pain, but for really different reasons. Mm. Foley is a magician, like that's all I can mm. say. Like uh, to be able to to be able to do that, and indeed a magician. Talking of the objects, Sam, a magician when it comes to objects as well. Like, like I'm really, I was thinking about how he presented the thumbtacks. Like, um, like he kind of holds this bag up as if it is like a magical device and everyone well maybe everyone doesn't know what's in it I knew what was in it um and um and I'm, I'm waiting for it so like you know I, I know Sam that we've talked a lot recently about this intersection of magic and musical variety theatre and goes back to actually some things we we're talking about about physical culture at the start of the podcast um but for me there are moments in this where like it it feels almost like a magician like a magician show which is such an odd connection. I do realise why, even as I'm saying it, it's a really weird connection. But the way he brings the bag up, it's almost like the kind of flurry, flourish of like the pulling the, the rabbit out of the hat or something like the the, the gestures are really like magician-like gestures, in my opinion. Yeah, and yeah, I think it, yeah. Sorry, Carmen. Sorry, it's just, it shows, for me, the genius of Mick Foley as a wrestler. Like if you look at his career from the 90s, you know, into the 2000s, how many people he was able to have great matches with, but also get over, even if it's Vader and Sting and WCW going through to WWE and his work with, say, Randy Orton, I think maybe four years after this. He has an ability that he can take the pain, still come out like with a huge amount of respectability and also kind of elevate his opponent as well, because a lot of Triple H's own evolution from the kind of Connecticut blue blood into the game I think you can also track to his feud with Mick Foley, Mankind, mm. Dude Loves, Cactus Jack, mm. you know, from 97 to the early 2000s. And I think here, there are wrestlers who seem to have a tolerance for pain that marks them as different. So like the first time I saw Sabu at WCW and, you know, he's genocidal, was a homicidal and suicidal. First time I saw Nick Gage and CZ, uh, CZW, which isn't really my cup of tea, but it is just interesting to see certain wrestlers can build a, mis- a mystique around them. And it's so interesting to compare, say, Foley and Triple H, where it's this incredibly brutal match. It seems to have this importance, has a wonderful storyline attached to it. And then you look at something like much later, like Dean Ambrose and Brock Lesnar, where they kind of tease a return to that sort of match. And they even, I think at one point, Mick Foley gives uh, Dean Ambrose like a weapon, you know, right before the match. And it's such a damn squib. So it's interesting here. Obviously, Mm -hmm. they don't let... Foley do everything that he wants because I know he has talked in the past of they wanted to do a death match between him and Terry Funk and Vince really did kind of pull him back from that but they give him enough scope to show that these more violent elements are also part of the storytelling if done correctly and if the wrestlers want to do them because you come away thinking more of Triple H 
less of Triple H, depend, you know, depending on uh, how you view a, a heel getting over. But Cactus Jack's tolerance for pain seems to elevate him well beyond his kind of his own uh, mm. character. Like he does, like, so again, going back to the reveal, like, so when I was watching that and Mankind says, no, I know someone else and Cactus Jack comes out, immediately I knew, oh, okay, this is going to be incredibly violent. This is going to be brutal. This is going to be painful. This is going to be a level of intensity that I w- would not have seen before in the WWF. And I think so much of why I love this match just comes down to so much of why I love Mick Foley as a wrestler and that he's able to get other people over. He's able to tell wonderful stories and he's able to bring that otherworldliness to wrestling that I think the really great wrestlers are able to do. And the use of weapons in this is so mm. clever. And I know I'm, I brought up the Dean Ambrose-Brock uh, Lesnar match because I was so disappointed in that because I followed John Moxley now um, through some of his death matches and you know, through his different things. I was like, oh my God, the, the WWE is going to bring, they're going to they're gonna let him off the reins. And then they didn't. But this is a wonderful example of what could have been um, perhaps, you know, replicated in that match. And I think it's such a testament to mankind, Cactus Jack's genius uh, in ring and then also outside the ring because the promos for this are some of just the best promos of that era, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like we could probably carry on talking about this. I'm kind of conscious of time. I'm, sometimes occasionally I get conscious of time in this podcast. Most of the time I don't get conscious of time at all. It just goes <laughs> on forever. But I, I'm sort of like, oh my goodness, like we've been talking for like an hour and a half. But this is great. Uh, so uh, let's, we'll, we will kind of draw it gently to a close, but I just want to kind of, um, one of the things that uh, what we've been working on recently is, is about the WBF and the World Bodybuilding Federation. And I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about about that because it's not something really that we've touched on in the podcast yet and I think it um as as a as an initiative let's say it um it it deals with this art sport thing that this podcast is particularly interested in, in really interesting ways so I just wondered if you could just take a bit of time just to explain what the WBF was and why why you stroke we <laughs> are interested in it at all why we spend our afternoons watching old WBF stuff um, yeah, what is it about it that, that's grabbing your attention then? Um, yeah, so first, it's very wonderful uh, to be working on WBF with you. So the WBF was the World Bodybuilding Federation, and this was a short-lived federation funded by Vince McMahon uh, Jr., no surprises there, that sought to revolutionize the sport of professional bodybuilding. So I think it's 91 and 92, the WBF holds two different shows. And what distinguishes the WBF, the World Bodybuilding Federation, from the sport of bodybuilding is that Vince wants to bring wrestling style gimmicks to bodybuilding. So in the 70s and 80s, a bodybuilder's gimmick was that they were that person. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Lou Ferrigno was Lou Ferrigno. Um, And they were larger than life in the case of Arnold, but generally speaking, it was quite a bland and vanilla sport. Vince said, I want to, you know, sign up, I think, 14 bodybuilders and give them all gimmicks. So we have, you know, Mike Quinn is the hardcore biker, kind of like The Undertaker during his American Badass um, stage. We have Jim Quinn, who I think is from the future. We have Aaron Baker, who has this vampire aesthetic. We have Gary Striden, who's kind of almost like a Ted DiBiase, you know, rich, entitled, moneyed, like pretty boy. And the plan for the WBF and Vince's uh, great idea was to turn this into an all-encompassing 
Federation. So the WBF had a magazine, Bodybuilding Lifestyles, which lasted for two years. It had a short-lived bodybuilding program that was like a general fitness program as well, very much like a lifestyle fitness, so almost like a men's health style TV program, and then pay-per-view bodybuilding shows. So in 91 and 92, the WBF held a pay-per-view bodybuilding competition where the competitors would go on stage. They'd have almost like their promo video playing before they went on stage where it would show them gambling in a casino or surfing at the beach or running through the rafters like a vampire. Then they'd come out on stage, they'd hit several poses and they'd go behind uh, and then come back out uh, depending on their posing routine. So he tried to turn bodybuilding into this sort of hybrid between bodybuilding and wrestling. If that sounds weird, it's because it was. If you're wondering why would anyone pay to watch a bodybuilding program, you are not alone. The WBF was an unmitigated disaster for a number of reasons. People didn't want to pay for a bodybuilding show. They also got stung with the WWF steroid trials during that era. So in the early 1990s, the federal administration of the United States starts to go after Vince McMahon and the WWF for supplying steroids to wrestlers because if you know anything about Vince McMahon, he likes big guys. Big guys generally mean anabolic steroids unless they're the great Kali. And the WBF comes at a time when Vince is trying to clean up the WWF of steroids. So in the WBF second year, it's a tested show, which doesn't happen in bodybuilding, which means you cannot take anabolic steroids before the show. So people are asked to pay to watch a bodybuilding show of, re of bodybuilders with wrestling gimmicks who aren't in the best shape. Um, so it doesn't last very long. It's very much the XFL before the XFL existed, but it's a really interesting thing because it goes from not to 90 straight away where it's announced there's a supplement line, Icapro, there's a magazine, there's a television show, there's pay-per-view shows. We have crossover. So Lex Luger will be attached to the WBF for a couple of months. He leaves his contract in WCW. He has a non-compete clause, so he can't go straight to the WWF. They sit him in the WBF as a placeholder. There's talk that Lex Luger will get involved. He doesn't. There's Lou Ferrigno comes, but then he leaves. So it's this wonderfully chaotic period. But it's still, there's a huge amount to unpack in it, especially that nexus between bodybuilding and wrestling. I think Claire probably has a better handle on how, how to describe that eloquently rather than just it's weird and it's wonderful, uh, which is usually what I shout at people unexpectedly when describing the WBF. I think weird and wonderful sums it up in a way that academically I couldn't do any better, really. But yeah, I think it's fascinating. Like, it's very interesting, that intersection. I think one of the troubles is, um, you know, one of the things that we're kind of exploring at the moment is the way that like the theatricalism of wrestling like mm. pollutes bodybuilding through the WBF. And I'm really careful about my words that I actually mean that. That's that's the way that it's viewed, that, that somehow this is this bodybuilding thing and it's been like um, polluted by the theatricality of wrestling in some way. So some of the things that we've been talking about today around fakery and stuff like that um, gets brought into body. And that's one of the reasons why it's kind of a mitigated disaster. But there's a lot of really kind of far out... Um, things to watch if people are interested in what like a lot of them are on YouTube so like really mad like that mad tug of war between the WWF and the WBF superstars and WBF are all faces and the WWF are all heels and it's just I mean it's mad it's absolutely mad brilliant and ridiculous and um, so yeah but Sam's been watching it quite recently in in preparation Connor so we've we've, we've converted him <laughs> oh sorry yeah 
I'm not sure that I need need converting. I'm all for anything that um, takes physical culture into the sort of bizarre theatrical world of, of WWE. And I do wonder whether... Um, so one of the things I always think about, like a lot of a lot of the wrestling that I I guess I study or write about, is what I've come to think of as like a contemporary experimental wrestling that sort of is this sort of meta, um, the the more outlandish and the weird and the wonderful, you know, the better in terms of contemporary wrestling. But you and and a lot of that's like I, I think about it in terms of like, um, we were talking before you came on, Connor, about WrestleMania nine at Caesar's Palace. Um, and how that around that time, you know, that was the, it's remembered as probably one of the worst WrestleManias. But if you if you actually kind of look at it with a bit of a tongue in cheek, like it's full of wonderful kind of theatrics, the stage, the costumes. There's a little bit of an intersection, I think, with the bodybuilding. But obviously bodybuilding, I think, has just just kind of come to an end before this. But I do wonder, like, you know, with with contemporary eyes, with a sort of contemporary desire for nostalgia and weirdness and, you know, stuff like that. Is, is it time to, to revive the, the World Bodybuilding Federation. I, I'm a fan of bodybuilding, <laughs> so I'll, I'll probably stick with no. It was a good experiment. Um, like So there's actually, one of the things that's fascinating about WBF is Vince was actually on to a lot of things when it came to this. So one of the things, utterly bizarrely, he helped improve contracts in bodybuilding because he said, I will give you guaranteed contracts if you sign with the WBF. And you won't just have to rely on winning competitions to get money. So oddly, he improved the contract and pay situation in the sport of bodybuilding and made it more secure as a as a you know actual job. I don't understand how that works in a world of 1099s, but he also began to tap into the lifestyle of fitness, which emerged in the 1990s. What I mean by that is if you follow anyone on Instagram who's a personal trainer, that seems to encompass their entire personality is going mm. to the gym and being fit and being healthy. There's like men's health uh, sort of aesthetic that's so dominant nowadays where you don't just go to the gym, you are the gym. You wear rogue fitness t-shirts, you walk around with your protein shaker, etc. The The magazine and the TV show started to tap into that. And it's also, I suppose, from a nostalgic point of view, it's kind of a brief culmination of Vince's love of the steroid user look and he's forced to after the steroid trial you see the rise of say Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels as the kind of leading figures in the WWF before that you have like Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan and these very muscular and large physiques so it also marks like a brief breaking point in the kind of wrestlers bodies that Vince uses so it's also quite a neat um, like segment in wrestling history and it's part of that ever expanding drive for muscularity in wrestlers' bodies that's then briefly paused and then ramps back up in the Attitude Era in the early 2000s. So from a nostalgic point of view, it's wonderful. From a like research point of view, it's very interesting. From a bodybuilding like quality of life for the athletes, it's wonderful. But no, like it's just again, like <laughs> I've competed in two natural bodybuilding shows. I've helped out in like multiple bodybuilding shows. I've watched bodybuilding shows. They are inherently boring. <laughs> no one will pay to watch that you only go because you are either in it or you know someone who's in it or you're watching the highlights no amount of theatricality uh will make it interesting i often think and i know we're pressed for time there was an indian club swinger in the early 1900s called tom burrows who would swing indian clubs for 100 hours without rest on a vaudeville or music hall stage and it was so boring that they would have to have other acts on at the same time. So there'd be a comedian telling jokes, there'd be a big band, there'd be dancers, there'd be a lecture, 
you know, there'd be anything and everything to distract you from the actual athletic event. The WBF was sort of trying to do that and it still wasn't enough uh, for bodybuilding. And I say that as a huge fan, I write a lot about bodybuilding, but it's a very boring sport. Um, so the world is probably better without the WBF. To be fair, the XFL looked like it might be a runner before COVID threw it out the window. So maybe mm. that would be a better you know, a better avenue. Um, I will certainly watch it if it comes back, but I don't think the demand is quite there uh, just yet uh, for, for a re-emergence. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll put the uh, the Arts Council application on ice then for the moment. Oh, I think go for it. Just, <laughs> just go for it. I would be so up for that. That would be awesome. Um, uh, before we before we finish, Connor, just are you watching anything at the moment contemporary wrestling wise? You mentioned AEW earlier on. Is that where you're currently accessing your your wrestling? Obviously, we still exist in COVID times, so there's not a great deal else going on. To be fair, but is that what you're watching at the moment? I'm kind of oddly existing in two different worlds at the moment. So I've tried Raw and SmackDown at the moment, and I just can't can't vibe with either of them. Uh, front of it. Roman Reigns doing really good work as a heel, but outside of that, I'm really struggling. So I'm kind of watching highlight shows and just reading what's going on. AEW, for all of its many um, kind of flaws at different times, I think is doing some really interesting work. I'm interested in seeing say how Britt Baker does now as the women's champion. I'm interested in what Cody Rhodes is going to do because at the moment the feud with QT Marshall isn't exactly going anywhere of substance. But I, I like the company ethos of AEW for the in, in the first instance. I love the fact that Dustin Rhodes can promote his LGBTQ plus T-shirt and all the proceeds go into a charity. I love the fact that they do seem to be more socially aware, and also I love the fact that they engage with their history in a much better way so the last uh dynamite show i watched i think cody rhodes has been uh, challenged to a bootstrap match or you know the um and bringing in aaron anderson's son for example and he him dressing exactly like aaron anderson did during his heyday having tully blanchard having jake the snake it feels more like a wrestling show for me so in one sense i'm completely on the aew train with all of its highs and lows and there are plenty of both i'm also going backwards in time so i've gone on a complete dusty roads binge at the moment so i'm just going back and looking at classic matches looking at kind of the wrestling from the 70s and 80s and really enjoying that as well so i'm kind of avoiding the wwf um both the past and the present for the time being and i suspect i'll continue um to do that the only time i'm watching wwf at the moment is myself and a friend have gone on a jake the snake binge which if you ever want, you know, greatest promos, I think pretty much all of them include Jake the Snake at some point. So yeah, AEW, at the moment, old Dusty Rhodes, I'll probably go on a Ric Flair binge uh, in the near future, but di di different pathways to the WWF. As I said at the beginning, my wrestling experience is very much uh, punctuated by the WWF before I go on to anything else. And I think OTT in Ireland is coming back soon, so I'm looking forward to seeing some live wrestling for the first time in two and a bit years. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, great. Um, so, uh, what's up next for you, Connor? Where can we find out more about you? What are you What are you planning on doing <laughs> in the next year, uh, work-wise, life-wise, and where can we find out about all those exciting things you're up to? Right, so, um, yeah, my website is Physical Culture Study, um, where I write like two or three articles a week on the history of fitness. I also contribute regularly to Barband.com, again on the history of fitness. So you can find say, my public writings there. I've just accepted a job at the University of Ulster. So for the next three years, at least, I'll be at Ulster University 
uh, working on a variety of things. I've just put in a project uh, on studying zombies in contemporary life because why not? Um, and then my next research projects are kind of all about early 1900s bodybuilding and what we can learn from that. I'm deliberately vague because I have no idea. I'm just kind of writing articles as they come and, and hoping something comes of it. So a lot, lot of weird, a lot of wonderful, some zombies and uh, hopefully moving into more wrestling scholarship in the near future as well. Yeah, brilliant. And um, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Connor. It's been um, it's been great giving us kind of a whole load of background to a lot of stuff that we've discussed in this podcast over the past few months. It feels like this has given us a really solid foundation. So yeah, yeah I think we um, we get quite a lot of wrestlers that listen to it, and I think like so many wrestlers that we know are just massive gym and physical culture enthusiasts and practitioners so i think there'll be a load of stuff that they're gonna really enjoy from that and find really interesting no perfect so i'm, I'm a listener uh first first time caller um so no, <laughs> th thank you so much for having me on uh, any excuse to talk about wrestling is grabbed with both hands so i really appreciate it thank you for listening to the episode for more episodes including interviews with spike trevay gene money and charlie evans Search Grappling Arts on Spotify, iTunes and YouTube.